sing 496. ago, Micah asked me if I thought we would make it to Matthew 24 in this calendar year. And, uh, because, you know, it's already September. Who knows? 
we're all the way to chapter 16. So that's encouraging. But in order to understand chapter 16, we have to do background. Because again, if you just leap in at chapter 16 of the book of Matthew, you're not going to understand one of the things that Jesus said in dealing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He accuses them of not discerning the signs of the times. That phrase has become part of our modern English lexicon. We know that phrase, the sign of the times. What most folks don't know is that that's a good biblical phrase. And what was he talking about? And how could he accuse them of not understanding the signs of the times? What were the particular signs that they should have understood that they weren't understanding? Well, I believe that if you know your Old Testament, especially if you know the Old Testament prophets, you're going to understand why Jesus could hold this particular group of people, these particular Pharisees and Sadducees, these that were on the planet at the same time that Jesus was, these that had face-to-face -face encounters with the Lord of glory. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They resisted him. They ultimately put him to death. And Jesus accused them of not understanding things they really should have understood. Well, by the time we get to Matthew 24, we're going to have to have a pretty good comprehension of the book of Daniel. Now relax, I'm not going to teach the whole book of Daniel right here. But we are going to look at one little piece of the book of Daniel this morning because I do believe that it is one of the things that Jesus is thinking of when he accuses the Pharisees and the Sadducees of not understanding the signs that God had already provided. The signs of the times. Paul uses similar language in speaking to the church at Thessalonica. He speaks of the particular moments in time, times and seasons, the kairos and the chronos. Chronos is the word from which we get chronograph, like a watch, chronology. And so there is a succession of events that God has laid out in advance, has predicted through his prophets, and is accomplishing in real time. And there is the expectation that the followers of God would actually know his word well enough that there is an expectation that these times and seasons, these kairos and chronos, will play out. We should expect them. One of the reasons that we have this fervent expectancy of the return of Christ is because the Bible says so. And so we're anticipating him coming back. When we get to Matthew 24, he is going to lay out things that have to happen, a series of events that have to happen in order to reach the ultimate end and the reestablishment of the kingdom and all that kind of stuff because God works in chronological order. Same thing, Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica, he said, you're not in the day of the Lord yet because there are things that have to happen before that. There's a chronology. And so we have to be aware, we have to be conscious of the chronological events and prophecies that the Bible lays out for us as our expectation grows in the return of Christ. So that's what he's accusing the Pharisees of. They have scripture, they have prophets who have told them that there are particular moments, particular events, particular things that are signs, that are indications, and yet they simply don't get it, simply don't see it. And so he accuses them of not seeing it. Now, the book of Daniel Daniel was uh, right behind Jeremiah chronologically. For those of you who have been following our Wednesday night teaching through 2 Kings, we uh, stopped our teaching in 2 Kings because we reached the point of the precipice just before the northern kingdom is taken into the Assyrian captivity. And during that time, God has sent prophets to Israel, the northern kingdom, to warn them of what's about to come. So we're looking at those warnings right now. And then when we get back to 2 Kings, picking up in chapter 14 where we left off, when we pick up there, we will then see those things occur that the prophets said were going to happen. Meanwhile, as God was dealing with the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom he was keeping intact. 
because that's where Jerusalem is, the place where God placed his name. That's where the temple is. That's where the worship of God is. But it is also through Judah that the Messiah is going to come. So Judah has to remain intact at least until Messiah gets here. And you know historically that's what happened. Messiah got here. He sent his message, the gospel, out into the world. 70 A.D., Titus comes steaming into Jerusalem with his army, and they destroy Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, and Judah is scattered the same way that Israel has been scattered. So, with that background, just as the southern kingdom, Judah, was about to be deported out of their own land by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, during that time, God raised up a prophet, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah warned Israel that this was coming and even warned them that it was going to be into Babylon, that they were going to end up going. And Jeremiah saw the early events of that. Well, Daniel was one of the well-to-do, he and his friends there in Judah. And the first deportation of Judahites, Jews, into Babylon was the high and the mighty and the rich and the powerful and those folks. And so Daniel goes into Babylon with that group. Now, every time I say Babylon, by the way, do you know the area of the world I'm talking about? Because these days it's not called Babylon, it's called Iraq. The name was changed. Persia was changed to Iran. And so when you look in the Old Testament and you read about Babylon and you read about Persia and you think, well, where are those places? Well, they're still there. They've just changed names, but they're still the enemies of Israel. Right now, our president is making deals with Persia. And the folks over there in Persia are saying, we're going to blow Israel off the map. So the Old Testament is just as valuable today as it ever was, and just as current as it ever was in understanding the people groups and the arguments between those people groups that are happening over there in the Middle East. Do you remember... Saddam Hussein, remember him? Remember back when he was a problem? Remember when everybody was like, oh, no, Saddam? He was the one who said that he was going to begin the mother of all wars. And, and then they found him hiding under the dirt, you know, so not exactly the great leader. But during his reign, he actually stamped coins. You can find them on the Internet. But he stamped some gold coins that had his image on one side, had Nebuchadnezzar on the other side because Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest ruler of ancient Babylon, ancient Iraq. So during the time of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was allowed by God to conquer Judah, the southern kingdom, deport that first wave. And the second wave of deportees into Babylon, you got the more common folk. That's Ezekiel. He's among that group. And so... That's kind of where the, the prophets fit. I'm trying to plug them in historically so you know where they fit. So Daniel gets to Babylon, and uh, because he is a good-looking guy, we're told that at the beginning of the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar wants some of the intelligent, good-looking young men from Israel to come stand in his court. And Daniel and his three friends, who have their names changed once they get into Babylon, Daniel's name is changed to Belteshazzar. I'll be calling him Daniel. His three friends are given the name Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When I was growing up, we used to call them Myshach, Yershach, and a bungalow. <laughs> and such an old joke. And yet you laughed, and you should not encourage that behavior. <laughs> and so they were taken with that first wave, and they were among the young men of Israel who were brought before the king, and uh, they went through a three-year preparation before they could even be brought in before the king, and the king decided those were the four. He chose Daniel and his three friends to be part of his immediate court. And then you know the story that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, a terrible dream, and then he says to all his Chaldeans, his magicians, his soothsayers, he says to them, uh, I've had a terrible dream and I need somebody to interpret the dream. And they say, sure, tell us the dream, we'll interpret. And he says, no, no, you can't trick me that easily, except he said it in Babylonian. 
you're just trying to buy time. You need to tell me the dream and the interpretation. And of course, they all say, no king has ever asked for such a thing. And he says, well, do it or I kill you. So no compromise kind of guy, King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel says, don't worry about it. I'll pray. We can probably figure this out. He goes into the king and tells him, I got it. And of course, the dream and the interpretation is of an enormous statue with a head of gold, shoulders and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet and toes of iron and clay. And then a stone comes down out of heaven, crushes the idol, crushes all the kingdoms that the idol represents, and then sets up a kingdom that's never going to be destroyed, and Daniel interprets it and says to him, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. He even says, you are a king of kings. You're that head of gold. But after you is going to come a succession of kingdoms inferior to you. And then through the rest of the book of Daniel, Daniel identifies the succession of kingdoms that are going to come, not only as a statue, but sometimes as wild animals. And he is so accurate in predicting the kingdoms to come. The next kingdom, the silver kingdom, is going to be the Medo-Persians, who in the book of Daniel you even read about the first king of Persia, Darius the Mede. Daniel, by the way, remains in the employ of Darius the Mede and lives until the first year of the reign of Cyrus. So he's there through the Babylonians, he's there into the Medo-Persians, because he's so valuable. So after the Medo-Persians, then come the Grecian kingdom, who he describes like a leopard with wings, Alexander the Great conquering through the Middle East and through Europe, moving so quickly he's like a leopard who's really fast, and a leopard with wings. And then down into the Roman Empire, which is remarkable that it would be two legs because the Roman Empire split into the Eastern and Western empires, and, and then finally a ten-toed conglomeration of kings that has a little bit of the iron in it and has some clay and even says the clay and iron don't mingle well, and so it's a really pretty loose confederacy of, of ten kings, and it's during the time of the ten kings that he speaks of a final world ruler who he sometimes calls the little horn because a horn is a sign of power. And that's the character that we sometimes refer to as the Antichrist, that he's going to come on the, on the scene during the time of the loose confederation of ten nations. Okay, so Daniel is really good at predicting the future in advance, so much so that in the late 1800s there were critics known as the German higher critics because they were coming out of Germany. And higher critics because they were criticizing the text of the scripture, and they started with the a priori position that miracles don't happen, and since miracles don't happen, miracles can't happen, and since miracles can't happen, anywhere in the Bible you read about miracles happening, you have to find another explanation because miracles don't happen, because they can't happen, because they don't. You just keep going around in that circle. During that exact same period of time, there was a British astronomer whose name was Sir Robert Anderson. Sir Robert Anderson wrote a couple books in response to the German higher critics. One of them was called Daniel in the Critics' Den. Another was called The Coming Prince. And in those books, he took the book of Daniel very seriously, so much so that he actually predicted the reformation of the nation of Israel. Now think about that for a moment because there hadn't been a nation of Israel since about 70 AD. Now you're talking about 1800s. So you're talking roughly 1700 years plus, there's been no nation of Israel. So it's real easy for the critics and real easy for the theologians to say, well, God is done with Israel because, well, there isn't one. And he's punished them and he's scattered them and that's the end of it. But he took the Bible seriously, like we're trying to do on Wednesday nights and looking at what the prophets actually said, and he predicted that there would again be a nation of Israel in 1948. There's a nation of Israel again. Because, you know, God's in control. So anyway, Robert Anderson took Daniel 9 very seriously, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Daniel 9 is where I want you to turn. Now, 
Daniel has access to Jeremiah's prophecies. Jeremiah's prophecy says that Israel is going to go into Babylon and they're going to serve under Nebuchadnezzar for 70 years. The same way that God predicted to Abraham that his descendants were going to go into Egypt and be there for 400 years. Because God is in charge of time. He knows how time works and he can set barriers. He can say this begins here and this ends here. So it's getting toward the end of that 70 years when Daniel in Daniel 9 is basically just praying that God will keep his word and do what he said he would do. We admit that we've sinned. We admit that we have rebelled against you. But be faithful to your word. That's Daniel's basic prayer. So starting in verse 18, well, no. I'm trying to cut this down, but chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication and fasting, sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We've acted wickedly. We've rebelled even turning aside from thy commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to thy servants, the prophets, who spoke in thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to thee, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds, which they have committed against thee, open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belongs compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teaching or in his statutes, which he has set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed thy law and turned aside, not obeying thy voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath, which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. And yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord, our God, by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to thy truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord, our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds, which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who has brought thy people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and has made a name for thyself as it is to this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with thy righteous acts, let now thine anger and thy wrath turn away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplications. And for thy sake, O Lord, let thy face shine on thy desolate sanctuary. 
O my God, incline thine ear and hear. Open thine eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we are not presenting our supplications before thee on account of any merit of our own, but on account of thy great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For thine own sake, O my God, do not delay, because thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Verse 20, now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering, and he gave me instruction, and he talked to me, and he said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Okay, he's about, starting in verse 24, to lay out a prophecy concerning Daniel's people and Daniel's city, Jerusalem. It had been 70 years that they were in Babylon, and Daniel, having read Jeremiah, having understood that it was going to be 70 years, is looking forward to God now keeping his word, forgiving Israel, and importantly, restoring Jerusalem and restoring the temple. This is what he's looking forward to. In other words, Daniel thinks... Now that the 70 years have run, this is the culmination of it. Wrap it all up, God. And instead, Gabriel tells him about 490 years of Israel's future. But he divides the time up into time segments. Starting in verse 24, our English translations say 70 weeks. The Hebrew is 77s, and since a week is seven days, we speak of it as weeks because the same Hebrew word that meant seven meant a week, a set of seven, which was very important to the Jews because every seventh day, they couldn't do any servile work. Those are the Sabbaths of the Lord. And since they had been not keeping his Sabbaths and not letting the land lay fallow every seven years. That was one of the reasons that Israel was driven out of their land so that the land could keep its Sabbaths. So the concept of Sabbath, the concept of sevens, was very important to the Jews. And so the time period is broken down into a series of sevens. And on top of that, 70 sevens, which is a total of 490 years. Seventy-sevens have been decreed for your people and for your holy city. There are six things that have to be accomplished during these 490 years. They are to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So those six things have to be accomplished in this 490 years. If those six things are not accomplished, either are the 490 years. So you are to know and to discern, verse 25, that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's the very thing he was praying about. Jerusalem, your temple, It's all destroyed. It's all laying bare. Nebuchadnezzar has laid waste to it. Think about it. This is where you've placed your name, God. Be faithful. Rebuild it. Okay, so the angel says there's going to be a decree to rebuild the temple. And from the time of that decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the prince. Okay, there's a time stamp. Messiah's coming. That's the expectation. This is what all Israel is looking forward to. Messiah is going to come. He's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to gather us. He's going to sit on the throne of David. There's all these prophecies about Messiah. So this time 
is going to include the coming of Messiah. So there's a time period from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time of Messiah the Prince. That time will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And it will be built again, the plaza, the moat, even during times of distress. Well, if you add up 7 and 62, what do you get? 69. 69. 69 weeks of years. Not 490 years, but 483 years. There's seven years hanging out there somewhere. Verse 26 says, Then after the 62 weeks, so there's seven, then there's 62, then Messiah will be cut off. Now the New American Standard says he will be cut off and have nothing. The King James says he'll be cut off but not for himself. There's some question about the translation. I actually prefer the King James translation. He's going to be cut off but not for himself. He's not dying for his sins. He's not dying because he's guilty. He's dying for others. After the seven and 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So the city and the sanctuary are going to be built. And then later on, they're going to be destroyed yet again when there's some prince that's going to come after Messiah has come and been cut off. So in agreement with Isaiah, who predicted that Messiah was going to suffer, that he was going to be cut off. Daniel says the same thing. This is one of the reasons that Jesus could accuse his followers so frequently of not understanding all that the scripture said about Messiah, how he had to suffer, how he had to die, how he had to be cut off and then raised again. This is going to come up as we continue through the book of Matthew. He's going to say, how is it that you don't know that? The scripture has already told you that Messiah is going to die because they, of course, because his apostles, of course, all fled when he died. Even though he had told them, I'm going to die, but I'll be back. And when I come back, I'll see you in Galilee. We'll get together. They didn't believe it. They didn't understand it. The same way that Isaiah talked about Messiah ruling, reigning, but then suffering like no man had ever suffered, and then describing the crucifixion of Christ and then God prolonging his days. And so the early rabbis wrestled with that and postulated that there were going to be two messiahs, Messiah ben David and Messiah ben Joseph. Messiah ben Joseph would die. Messiah ben David would rule because they couldn't figure out how one person could satisfy everything that the prophets said about Messiah, that he was going to die what they didn't get was that same one was going to raise up, was going to resurrect, was going to live again. This was particularly difficult, as you might imagine, for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Do you know what the difference is between Pharisees and Sadducees? The Pharisees believed in angels, resurrection, heaven, all that. The Sadducees didn't. They were the rationalists of their day. And since they didn't believe in resurrection or anything like that, it's very difficult for them to be reading the scripture and somehow postulate that one man is going to accomplish all of this because he's going to die and resurrect again. Well, that just doesn't fit their theology at all. And so there's this constant battle, this rift between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's why they're named as two different groups. Remember what we're really talking about here. Even though we're in Daniel... We're really talking about Jesus saying to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he's accusing them of not discerning the signs of the times. Now, what we just read from Daniel tells us that there's going to be a time period that is going to start with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And the 69 weeks of years are going to culminate in the death of the Messiah. So now Jesus is on the planet giving evidence that he is Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. The Pharisees hate him because he has his own group of followers. He has his own sect who became known as the way, the followers of the way. And he is undermining their power base. He is undermining their authority. If he is who he says he is, 
then everything he has said about them is true. And they're on their way to hell. And they are whitewashed sepulchers. And they are a den of vipers. And so they have a real vested interest in stopping him. And so they come to the conclusion that the most effective way to stop him is to kill him. But there is an internal argument among the Jews even about killing him. Because some argue if we kill him, we're going to make him into a martyr. And the end of this thing is going to be worse than the beginning. One thing they all agree on is if we kill him, we definitely don't kill him on Passover. Definitely. That's the one day we don't do it. Because there will be an uprising by his followers if we kill him on Passover. Except that immediately after his baptism, he was identified by John the Baptist, who was serving in the spirit of Elijah as a forerunner to Christ, preparing the hearts of the sons and the fathers to be ready for Christ. He points at Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's Passover language. The Lamb that takes away sin. So prophecy says Jesus has to die on Passover. The one thing the Jews are determined not to do is kill him on Passover. So what day does he die? Passover. Passover, absolutely. Because that's what has to happen despite what people do or don't want to do. Now, he is about to be killed by the very Pharisees and Sadducees he's talking to. In other words, the 69 weeks of Daniel are about to come to their fruition. Now, historically, scholars and people much smarter and more mathematical than me have poured over this prophecy in Daniel 9. I mentioned earlier Sir Robert Anderson. Part of the reason I brought him up was that in his book, The Coming Prince, and I think it's repeated in uh, Daniel and the Critics' Den, he does the math. Remember that he worked as an astronomer and so he sort of turned the, uh, the clock of the stars and the planets backwards. And he found the date that he believes is the starting date for Daniel's prophecy. Now, historically, the first decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple comes from Cyrus. Cyrus, who was predicted by name by Isaiah 150 years in advance. There's a good prophecy. Cyrus does let the work begin on the temple, but the work is stopped repeatedly, and finally they just sort of give up. Well, then there is a king named Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is the king of Persia during the time of Esther. Okay, so when you're reading the book of Esther and you're reading about a Persian prince, you're talking about this Artaxerxes guy. Artaxerxes is a name that I am glad has fallen out of common use. Artaxerxes picks up that decree that originally had been made by Cyrus, and he reestablishes it. And the work begins again. And this time, the work goes on. And in fact, uh, we read that the work was done with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other because of the amount of resistance by the surrounding nations that the Jews had to encounter as they were rebuilding. Sir Robert Anderson says that the start date is the date of Artaxerxes beginning the work of building the temple and the wall. He does the mathematic work of converting solar years, since that's the way we keep time, into Jewish lunar years, and then he figures, since there's no such thing as 0 AD, you have to remove a year. And then he had to make up for leap years. Because on the Jewish solar calendar, because they're five days shorter of the solar calendar, every six years, they would move their calendar by a month, add an extra month, so that it brought it around again. Which is why, to this very day, on our calendar, Passover and Easter keep moving. That's why it's sometimes in March, sometimes in April, early, later, because of that combination of lunar and solar calendars. Okay, now he figured by his reckoning, by his mathematics, he sees the culmination of all those years, that seven and the 62, that total of 69 years, he sees it culminating at Jesus' triumphal entry. 
That's one of the reasons, he says, that Jesus would make comments to the Jews when they said, you know, tell the rabble to be quiet. They were upset that if the Romans saw this, that they might suppress it or whatever. And, and he says to them, you don't know. You don't know what's happening here. You don't know the time of your visitation. If these people were quiet, these rocks would cry out. Because this has to happen. I have to be recognized as David's greater son, which is why they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. They wanted him to set up the kingdom and establish Israel right then and there. But that's not what he came for. He came to die and to raise again and to go off into heaven with the promise that he would come back and do the rest of the stuff that's been promised by the prophets. Have I lost anybody yet? Am I boring anybody yet? No. No? You're still with me? Yes. Okay. Because this is all real important. Now, there is another school of thought that says that the reason that Daniel is separated into seven years and 62 years and then Messiah is cut off is because it starts with Cyrus's decree, which began, that work began, and then it stopped. Then it started again, and so then they pick up Artaxerxes. But there were actually a couple of secondary decrees by Artaxerxes, and so some people kind of pick one of those in order to make the dates work out. Here's what we know for certain. No matter how you do your math, the Bible says, Daniel says, Gabriel says, coming directly from God, says that at the end of the 69 weeks of years, 69 times 7, after 483 years from the decree, it's going to culminate in the death of Christ. That's inarguable. No matter what other math you do, whatever date you use as your starting point, whichever decree you think is the decree, however you do it, it ends in Christ dying. You got that? And Jesus is talking to the very men who are trying to kill him. And he says to them, how do you not read the signs of the times? How do you not get this? If you had known your Bible, you would even recognize that the fact that you're out to kill me is satisfying the prophecy of Daniel that proves that I am who I said I am. And you in your blindness, you in your ignorance and your hatred, you in your desire for your power base, you in your abuse of God's law in order to enrich yourself, you who he has just said, you who make the word of God void by your traditions, you are about to satisfy the prophecy of Daniel by killing me, and you don't even know it. I find this really interesting. That was all introduction. Now we can go to Matthew 16. <laughs> Chapter 16, starting in verse 1. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came up and testing him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Okay, now what kind of things have we been reading so far? Feeding 5,000, feeding 4,000. Everybody who came to him in the last chapter, in verse 29, he went out by the Sea of Galilee, away from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He went out to the people, and everybody who came to him, he healed them. So he's doing plenty of signs. There's plenty of indications. Nobody else is doing this kind of work. But notice that Matthew takes the time to tell us that they were testing him. They were trying him. They were putting him to the test. This is very common to this very day. You can find it all over the Internet. You'll find people who think that they are so smart, so clever, so well-versed, so intelligent, so academic, that they can put God to the test. You don't get to put God to the test because he's not on trial. You are. He's the judge. He judges people. Nowhere in the Bible are you given the authority to test him. So even though Christ is compassionate and long-suffering and kind and fed the multitudes because they were hungry and healed them because they're people and they're suffering, 
and he's kind and he's generous. These, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, say, show us a sign. And he says no because he realizes that they are testing him. They're trying him. They're trying to make him prove himself. And he has no interest in proving himself to them. Because, as I keep saying, Christianity is a revealed religion. If you know anything about Christ, it's because he revealed himself to you. And he is under no obligation or compunction to reveal himself to everybody. And if he wants you blind, he'll continue to make you blind. He'll make sure you don't understand. Now, by the way, in the big picture, these Pharisees and Sadducees had to continue hating him so that he would die on the Passover. Mm -hmm. That had to happen. So they were under God's absolute control, but they were not allowed by Christ to start thinking that they had the authority to try him. So they said, show us a sign. He said to them, when it's evening, you say it's going to be fair weather because the sky is red. If the sun's going down, you see a red sky, you know there's no rain in the forecast, so you know it's going to be fair weather. In the morning, you say there will be a storm today because the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky? You can tell the weather, and you can't discern the signs of the times. You're smart enough that you can see leaves coming up on trees, and you know, oh, it's springtime. You're smart enough to know that when the, the leaves fall, well, it's autumn. You, know, you can read the signs of the weather. You, you know whether to expect rain, whether not to expect rain. You're able to read all the physical elements of this world, and yet I'm standing right here in front of you, and we collectively are about to satisfy the Daniel prophecy that's been ticking away now for 483 years. By the way, I happen to believe that the reason the kings came from the east, who were called the Magi, they came from the area of Babylon where Daniel was. And remember Daniel's prophecy that there's going to be a succession of kingdoms, then there's going to be a final ultimate king and kingdom. And every other kingdom he described occurred. In fact, they're living in the time of the Roman Empire. So that puts you in the area of the legs of Iron and clay. It's certainly possible that when they saw the star, because I've often wondered, you know, okay, so you saw a star. How did you know that meant king? Specifically, the king of the Jews. Remember, they went to Herod because they thought Herod would know. They said, where do we find the king of the Jews? Like Herod would go, oh, I got it. Well, he's over here. All Herod heard was, what? He's here? He's somewhere? Well, if he's king of the Jews, then I'm not. And remember, he was a puppet king to the Romans. He's an Edomian. He's not even Jewish. And he's about to be out of a job. What does he do? He finds out where is he supposed to be born. They check the scripture. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata, according to Micah. And he says, go there and kill all the babies. He doesn't want this king of the Jews to be born. How did the the kings from the east, how did the magi from the east, how did they know that the king of the Jews was connected to that star in this time period? Mm. Well, they have Daniel. I think there's a connection to be had there. In any case, here Jesus is speaking to the very people who want him dead, and in killing him, they are going to satisfy Daniel's prophecy of 483 years that must culminate in the death of Messiah. They don't know it. They don't see it. And Jesus accuses them and says, you can't even read the signs of the times. Mm -hmm. If you knew Daniel, if you knew what was going on, if you could read the signs, if you could see what I'm doing, you asked for a sign. You want me to do a sign for you. Look around. Look at all my followers. Ask them, what's he been doing? Well, he's been, uh, the blind can see, lame are walking, the deaf here. Uh, he's feeding huge groups of people with a couple loaves and fishes. Everybody who comes to him gets healed. He's driving out devils. 
the demoniac, the Gadarenes even bowed down and worshipped him and called him the son of God. These would be signs. And they're signs of a particular time, a series of events that is coming to a culmination, and you don't get it. Didn't know what was written. And it's right there in front of them. Had they known the prophecy, had they read the signs, they would have looked at him and said, you're Messiah. You have to be. It's time. You're here and you're doing the signs that only Messiah could do. You must be Messiah. But if they had known that, they would have worshipped him. They wouldn't have killed him. And there'd be no hope that any of us would be saved. So despite the signs, despite the prophets, despite all that, They remained in their ignorance. So, Jesus says to them, I know it's a sad story. I know I'm upset. I know. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky and you cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And then, of course, you know that this is a repetition of what he said back in Matthew 12. He says, no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Here he doesn't explain what it was back in Matthew 12. He said the same way that Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish. The son of man is going to be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. He said that's the ultimate sign. That's the ultimate indication. You want me to do some little miracle for you, but you're going to kill me. And then I'm going to raise up three days later. And that's the sign you're looking for. Of course, that's also the sign that you are whitewashed sepulchers and that you are on your way to hell and that your religion is going to be left empty to you, all the stuff that he's going to say coming up in Matthew when they're going to look at the great temple and they're going to look at the walls and he's going to say, not one stone here is going to remain that isn't thrown down because he's going to... To put an end to all of that because the new covenant has gone into effect and no longer is this about the covenant of Moses and the priests and the temple and the animal sacrifices. He's going to make the final sacrifice and he is going to establish the new covenant in his blood. An evil, a wicked, adulterous generation seeks for a sign and a sign will not be given to it except the sign of Jonah and then he left them and he went away. Because he's not under any compunction to tell them anything. He leaves them in their blindness, walks away. By the way, I don't know what that does to your theology, but it ought to help you conform your theology and your thinking to the reality that Jesus simply isn't like the modern milquetoast Jesus that you read about so often in modern religion. He's in complete charge, and he's not waiting for anybody to make him Lord or Savior. He's not waiting for anybody to pick or choose him, and he's not going to kowtow to people in the hope that they might accept him. He's completely in charge, utterly sovereign, knows completely what he's doing, and sometimes will say to people, no, not you, no, no. To others, he'll say, yes, compassion. Yes. So the disciples came to the other side, And they had forgotten to take any bread with them. We read this a few weeks ago when we were looking at feeding the 5,000 and feeding the 4,000 so we can move through it fairly quickly. Watch out and beware, said Jesus. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they were so spiritually adept. They were so tuned in to what he was saying. They hung on every word and understand the great depth of his teaching. So they discussed among themselves and said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. (laughs) We forgot to bring something to eat. And that's why he's talking about the leaven of the Pharisees. That's what this is really about. Jesus, aware of this, which I find interesting, said to them, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, physical bread? 
But I said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Try to walk if you can. This is difficult for us, but kind of try to put yourself in Jesus' sandals at this moment. He talks to the Jews, talks to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they don't get it. They don't understand. They don't understand. So then he goes to his own apostles who have just witnessed all the miracles. And they don't understand. And they don't understand what he's saying. It's amazing that he didn't at some point just go, you know what, forget it. (laughs) Just never mind. Nobody here understands at all. But what does this tell you about the natural state of human beings? John tells us that the reason they didn't understand was because the Holy Spirit had not yet come. When Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit, he calls him the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. He says, the world doesn't know him, but you know him because he'll be with you and he'll be in you. New dynamic, the Holy Spirit inhabiting people. For what reason? Jesus says, and he will remind you of everything I said. He'll remind you of everything I taught. So John said, that's why even during his three and a half year ministry prior to the cross, he would oftentimes say things to these guys and they didn't get it. Christianity is a revealed religion. It has to be revealed to you. And if he leaves you in your natural state without the spirit of God, conforming you, changing you, enlightening you, regenerating you, it doesn't matter how much evidence, how much proof, how many miracles, the scripture itself, how long the scripture's been there, it doesn't matter. You won't get it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had the scripture, didn't get it. The apostles had Jesus himself, didn't get it. You think you'd do better? Were it not for the Spirit of God enlightening you to the Word of God, you'd understand nothing. You certainly wouldn't be here on a Sunday morning. You'd be in bed somewhere, or you'd be napping, or you'd be at a ball game. You'd be, you would not be at church on a Sunday morning wasting your time if the Holy Spirit of God hadn't gotten a hold of you and began actively drawing you to the things of God. Anyway, they didn't get it. The Pharisees didn't get it. So he said, how is it that you don't understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? And then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven that's in bread, but to beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Somebody look up Galatians 5.9. Somebody else look up 1 Corinthians 5. 6 to 8, and we will call it a morning. In both of these instances, Paul's going to pick up this language that Jesus uses in making a parallel between leaven and the teaching of the Pharisees. Now, what did the Pharisees teach? Well, they taught Moses. They taught the law. And so Paul starts using that language and referring to the leaven as being the law, the law of Moses and leaven become interchangeable concepts in Paul's writing because of what Jesus said here. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Who's got Galatians 5, 6? 5, 9. What did I say? 5, 9. Yes. Well, who's got 5, 6? No one? Okay. <laughs> Alan, stand up so everybody can hear it and read Galatians 5, 9 for us. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Okay, so what is he talking about there? Well, he's talking to the Galatian church who have been encouraged to not only be circumcised, but to follow the law. And his argument is, if you start down that line of keeping the law, then you're going to be responsible for the whole law. And he says, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Add a little bit of legalism to your religion, and it will permeate your religion, and legalism will take over where grace should stand. Okay, longer section, 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8. Who's got that? In fact, to really get it, let's all go there for just a second. 1 Corinthians 5. I know many of you are already there. Let me catch up with you real quick. Because Paul does a really interesting thing here, and I, I don't mean to get into it in any depth. I do want to let you go. 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Turn there. The church at Corinth was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. It had a large Jewish community in it. Paul makes reference to 
Judaistic practices like the keeping of feasts. And part of keeping the feasts included the Feast of Unleavened Bread, during which time they had to get all the leaven out of their home, out of their camps. But here is Paul introducing them and encouraging them to go along with the, the new covenant of salvation by grace through faith, not by the works of the law. So 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Let's just start there. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you, and an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone, someone in your group, has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant, and you have not mourned instead in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan, for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So what's he talking about? Within the body of the church, you have somebody in your midst who is a sinner, who is a blatant sinner. And rather than mourning and calling him to change or throwing him out, you're just letting it continue. And he takes that leaven concept again and says don't you know that if you don't do something about that leaven it'll leaven the whole lump your whole church will be affected by it your whole gathering is going to be affected by it but then he makes reference to the feast probably the feast of unleavened bread when they would have to get the leaven out and so he's saying that's a type of getting sin out of the camp out of the church your boasting is not good do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened so if leaven is a type of sin and if Christ has died to pay for your sin debt then no longer is sin an issue between you and God and so you are considered to be unleavened for Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. That's how it is that you were unleavened. Passover is the first day of the week of unleavened bread. So Christ, our Passover, has died, and therefore you're satisfying that feast of unleavened bread. So then let us celebrate the feast, verse 8, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity. And truth. So all I sought to show you there is that once Jesus put forward that the teaching of the Pharisees was a form of leaven, it's a form of a sin that Israel had to drive from their camp. During the unleavened bread, there couldn't be any leaven found anywhere in any household or anywhere in the camp of Israel. Jesus picks up that word leaven and says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Paul picks up that language. And both in talking to the church at Galatia and to the church in Corinth, both of whom had sin problems, he brings up the leaven question. It says a little leaven is going to leaven the whole lump. So the Jesus language, the Jesus concept of sin as leaven is carried into Paul's teaching. That's what I wanted to show you. Well, so this morning we went all the way from Daniel through Matthew into the Corinthian leather. Corinthian leather. Rich Corinthian leather. I am Ricardo Montalban. You don't know what I'm talking about, do you, Matthew? You're 25. You have no idea what I'm talking about. None whatsoever. Consider it a blessing. Consider it a blessing that you don't know what I'm talking about. All the way to the Corinthian letter. Because our goal here is Bible teaching. Did you learn anything this morning? Yes, sir. Do you like all that prophecy stuff? I'm glad because there's a lot more coming because so. we're heading toward Matthew 24 and this is all just going to keep building and building and building. Jim, I have a question. Yes, sir. Before we get away from the Pharisees and Sadducees, surely some of them must have known 
what the, the prophecies meant about the 483 weeks, and they must have realized that this was the Messiah. Surely some of them. Like Joseph of Arimathea, he was part of the leadership in Israel, and he recognized Christ. Um, you also read in John 3 about one of the teachers in Israel, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night for fear of the Jews. So you do see examples of Jewish leaders and Pharisees. Paul, of course, was a Pharisee. So you do read about some who seemed to understand what was going on and were empathetic to his cause. But the leadership, by and large, was kept in, in darkness. By the way, I'm glad that you mentioned the 483 years. Because did you notice that the promise from Gabriel was that there were 490 years concerning specifically Daniel's people and Daniel's city, Jerusalem? And did you notice that the first 483 actually happened? And did you notice that Daniel's prediction of a succession of kingdoms after Nebuchadnezzar actually occurred in the right order, exactly the way that Daniel said, in a very physical sense, right here on earth. There are other things that Daniel has predicted that haven't happened yet, that I expect just as completely, just as physically, right here on earth. And there's this 70th week hanging out there somewhere. Where is that week? Where are those events? Because those events must surround Jerusalem and Daniel's people. It's going to start with a treaty. It's going to start. And how did the other one start? With an agreement, with a treaty. And what was the agreement in the treaty that started it? To build Jerusalem and to build the temple. Is there a temple in Jerusalem right now? No. And in fact, what we're told is that the little horn is going to confirm the covenant that was already formed. So there's a treaty coming somewhere that's going to include, let's build the temple in Jerusalem, which is exactly what the Jews are looking for right now. He's going to confirm the covenant with the many. Yep. I contend that that 70th week is still hanging out there somewhere. But is it your opinion that we won't be here to see that happen? I guess you'll have to wait around and find out. I don't think we'll be here. Anything else? Any questions? Say goodbye to the Internet Church. Bye. Bye. Digital congregation. Was that the phrase I was looking for? <laughs> Take two. Take two. Say goodbye to the digital congregation. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time as we gather around the word and study God's sovereign grace.